You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Welcome to HeadX, hosted by Martin Betts. This podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the higher education experience. Here we are back in the HeadX studio and I'm joined again today by Andrea Burrow from OES in the UK. How are you doing, Andrea? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, we're moving into springtime in the UK. Um, nights are getting lighter, so uh, things are looking positive. Well, certainly on the weather front anyway. Oh, well, there you go. The Brits always talk about the weather, don't they? And we've had some some lovely fresh starts of the year here in Australia too. It's um orientation week and and semester and academic year getting underway in all Australian universities in the next little while. You're sort of halfway through your academic year, I think, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. We are um, in the uh, second uh, semester and uh, yeah, very much into the swing of things in terms of the academic year. It's, um, it's, It's fascinating for me having been a British academic and coming out to Australia, I could never get over how the the seasons were different and how the financial setup for an Australian university, it's almost like your whole year's income is known by about the second week of January in that um, school leavers, applications through the tertiary admission centres become known and you sort of know what, what numbers you're dealing with and what income you've got to play with for the whole year when the year's first month isn't isn't even out. But um, but knowing where anyone is financially, uh, th- uh, where we are at the moment, Andrew, seems particularly troublesome. I mean, how are UK universities travelling financially at the moment in the sort of big picture of things? Are they are they finding it tough? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, across the UK, they're, they're struggling financially. Uh, there was a recent PwC report commissioned by Universities UK, who actually analysed 84 universities' financial predictions, uh, looking to assess their financial outlook in a whole range of different scenarios. Uh, the financial concerns of sustainability from this report have gone from chronic to acute so i it you know i i think that it is a challenge um the the risks are pretty broad uh, you've got sort of the impact of inflation reliance on international student recruitment sustainability of pension schemes and the need for investment in facilities and environmental policies and if the office for students assessment of the overall financial health of the sector is accurate there is a possibility that a major institution may fail. A major institution? What, so Oxford or Cambridge is going to fall over or one of the big former polytechnics or colleges of advanced education is going to fall over? How's that playing out in terms of the different types of UK universities? Are some struggling more than others, do you think? Well, I think if we look at sort of the numbers of students and linked to that, the funding and where they're coming from, we we can see some patterns. So in academic year 22, there were about 2.9 million students at UK higher education institutes. So that covers all years, modes, levels and domiciles. Most full-time students are studying first degrees and there are proportionally more overseas students studying postgrad courses. If we look at the number of accepted applicants by the tariff level of universities, and there are three tariff groups, high, medium and low, which refer to the average grades of students admitted. When we look at the recruitment of home 18 year old students, acceptances to the higher tariff institutions increased on average. 
but those acceptances to medium and lower tariff universities on average were down. So international students are incredibly important for the UK. Universities financials show that the sector average for income from international students is about 20%. So where are they coming from? Well, top sending countries um, have changed over the last few years. China currently sends the most students, just over 97,000. Entrance from India and Nigeria have increased. But since 2016, 2017, there's been a fall in the entrance from EU countries, which had traditionally sent a large number of students to the UK. Now, what I would say, there are certainly universities that are bucking those averages in each tariff level. If you look specifically at online learning, what is really interesting is that the universities that don't index so high on rankings or tariff, they really lean into other attributes around structure, skills and systems to gain competitive advantage. And it's those that can articulate a really clear and differentiated strategy and strong value proposition that are and will be successful. So to quote University of East Anglia's motto, who we're going on to, to interview, do different. Do different indeed. And look, that, that analysis of what's happening in the UK is really interesting for me to reflect upon with um, here we are starting the year with numbers becoming known across all Australian universities. I We, we don't have tariffs, those three tariffs in the same way. We have the the different groups of group of eight and ATN, the Australian Technology Network, the independent research universities and the regional universities. And we are participating in those same rankings. And I sense um, I sense that if, if, if what you were describing as a flight to quality might be taking place in a tough market, then something similar might be happening in, in Australia too. I think it's been a really tough year for domestic students. And I think the universities that appear to be doing best are those that have always done best and have had the best reputation. And it is a time when if you are caught in some of the um, lower performing groups of universities, then you really do have to do different. And you really do have to differentiate and you really do have to embrace technology and you really do have to, to innovate in your where, what and how you, you're delivering learning if you're going to cap capture some markets. So very interesting, the parallels and maybe the differences between the UK and Australia in how market demand and student patterns are playing out. Um, what about in the US? I don't know if you know much about the US, Andrea. I've been paying quite a lot of attention to what's happening over a longer time scale there. What does it fit in in what we've just said, do you think? I, I think 2023, there was a whirlwind of developments for enthusiasts of online education in the US. We saw um, a significant number of new regulations and executive actions which have and will reshape the landscape of online learning. But I actually think this is just a prelude to more significant shifts. There's no doubt reading the press, that OPMs and for-profit entities captured attention. But I really think that the Department of Education and its allied organisations are honing in on a much broader target, which is online learning as a whole. Really? Um, my sense of the data in terms of student demand, I, I've, I've had some sense of some of that in terms of regulatory announcements, but the trends in terms of demand have been moving more quickly towards online, it seems to me, in the US than they have in other parts of the world. And 
different universities seem to be taking even more starkly different reactions to that. You, you, you're probably aware, and lots of our listeners to this podcast will be aware of the University of California system making a quite bizarre, in my mind, um, response to um, trends in student demand for online learning and its programs by making it actually against its regulations to award an entirely online degree. Whereas I've I've found it fascinating interviewing people like Scott Paulser for Paul LeBlanc and Michael Crow for three of many different leaders of universities in the US who've grown very online um, oriented universities in, in quite a bit of contrast. Seems like there's a bit more differentiation going on there, perhaps. Well, if UEA are, are proclaiming on their website that they're seeking to do different, perhaps we should have a little listen to their new vice chancellor then and see exactly what it is that he is seeking to do different in the form of David Maguire. This is the interview that we had with David. I'm joined today on HeadX by Professor David Maguire. And David is the, the Vice Chancellor and President of the University of East Anglia in Norwich. David's a, a seasoned UK university leader, having formerly been Vice Chancellor at each of Sussex, Dundee and Greenwich universities, as well as having been the principal of the Dyson Institute of Engineering and Technology. And I'm sure he'll share some experiences from all of those and other places when we um, hear from David shortly. He's also had international research experience from being the chief scientist of Esri in California after gaining degrees in geography from Exeter and Bristol for two very fine universities. But he came to my attention by recently publishing an opinion piece really lamenting the financial stress facing UK universities right now. And I think, David, speculating on how soon it would be before financial failure became maybe even widespread in the UK system. So happy new year of the dragon, David, and a very warm welcome to HeadX from Australia. Good morning, Martin. Nice to be with you. And uh, nice to be with you too. And David, I, I painted a picture there of, of you, the scientist, graduating from some, as I said, some very prestigious UK universities. And you, you graduated just a, a few years either side of my my degrees as well. Halcyon days, I remember them. I don't know how you remember them. And venturing off as you did to California to lead global geographical sciences in a fine institute and, and then rising to lead a, a number of distinct and very high achieving UK universities. You, I can only imagine you must have pinched yourself along the way with some of all of that. But but where did your drive to study the world, to see the world, and then lead the world of UK universities come from? Can you share your story with us? Yes, of course. I think the first thing to say is I really couldn't have predicted my career trajectory growing up humbly in the northwest of England. It's all a bit of a surprise, really, to be where I am today. From an early age, I was always really interested in being outdoors and also in, in maps. I like the way they represent things. I like the pictorial uh, splendor of uh, paper and, and digital map data. And also as a child, I spent quite a lot of my time in the Pennines, the local hills and the Lake District, where I learned really rather a lot about the processes that shape the landscape and also the land use that veneers on, on the top. So I think that, together with what I now realise is an innate curiosity to try and figure out how things really work, really got me started as an environmental scientist. And then later on in my career, while I was at Bristol, I discovered IT and realised its incredible potential for solving 
some of the major problems of our changing world. And then, as they say, the rest is history. It's that combination of environmental science and computers in IT, which have, have taken me right throughout my career and now moved on to uh, leadership and administration. Um, I make it that you've now led five different UK higher, edu higher education institutions in the period since there was last a rise in the student fees in the UK. It's a staggering thought. And you must have, I imagine, about the best view and the best perspective of the current plight of UK universities that, that anyone has. And I have to ask you, what on earth is going on? Well, for all the time that I've been around in university, it's been quite a while now, there's always been sirens who talk pessimistically about the future of higher education and lots of consultants who are going to sell us some secret spice about how to uh, do things uh, better, faster and, and cheaper. But I think if I reflect on 2024, I think it's different now. It's certainly different in, in the UK and from what I've observed in many other parts of, of the world. Well, in short, UK universities right now are under really significant financial stress. stress. And I think that rises um, from a constellation of different factors. Uh, back in um, uh, the last decade, uh, caps were re removed on student number control, which meant that anybody could expand and some uh, selective universities took the opportunity to, to grow, which has been at the expense of others. We're still living with the after effects of Brexit and, and COVID, and that's constrained the ability for European students to come into Britain and also restricted access to research grants. Uh, we know inflation's rampant post-COVID in many countries around the world, so our costs are going up much faster than our, our income. And we've got this cap on our home undergraduate fees, been set now at 9250 since 2017 and actually only rose uh, to, to 9000 in 2012, so uh, not keeping pace with inflation. And now we've got government rhetoric um, talking down international students coming to study here. And we're all looking at uh, the cost of implementing our net zero commitments, which in many cases could be hundreds of millions of pounds to 2035 or 2040 or, or, or whenever it is. So it's it's really, really tough. And I think it all uh, crystallised a little bit in a recent report by PwC, the accountants, which is commissioned by Universities UK, the UK University Trade Body. And that showed just how susceptible UK universities are to changing factors such as domestic and international student numbers and also in inflation. And I think what that report showed more than anything else, and very clearly, is that financial problems are not just a few poorly run, unfortunate university problems, but it's actually a systemic challenge across the sector. And it's now estimated that about half or more of UK universities will be in deficit uh, this year, which is staggering if you if you think about it and you think about the potential implications for higher education and, and economies. And so we've seen loads of stories in the media about course closures, staff layoffs, spending cutbacks, rising deficits and so on. So we are at a really challenging point right now here in early 2024. But what do you think is the real prospect of any change in university funding and student fee levels under the current government in the UK? And look, um, often in universities and, and sectors of higher education around the world, we sort of hope for or keep our fingers crossed for changes of government. But would there be any press prospect of things getting any better, given the state of the public purse, the 
I don't know what it's like in the UK, but my sense everywhere around the world, the, the declining public sentiment towards universities, which often drives investment, and the fragile fragile state of the UK, but of the world economy. Is there any prospect of this government or any government turning that round anytime soon? Our uh, Minister of Higher Education, Robert Halfon, has said very clearly that the home undergraduate B cap is going to be frozen at 9,250 for three years, he said. We're a little bit into that now, but not any immediate prospect of a, of a change. And given that that's the main source or one of the main sources of income for most UK universities, this is causing real uh, problems. And I think it will only be further exacerbated next year and beyond as inflationary pressures uh, build up on universities. Uh, there will be an election in the UK, either at the end of this year or the very early part of next year, so certainly within the next 12 months. But neither of the two parties have signalled uh, the real intent to improve funding for higher education in, in the UK in, in the immediate future. It's just not a an area which they have signalled they want to, to go. But I think that political pressure will build up eventually and they will have to do to do something. It is not beyond the realm of possibility that one or more major universities could go bust in the next um, one or two, two years. Um, but um, in the meantime, absent support from government, I think it falls to universities to figure out themselves how to deal with this uh, and uh, how to cut their cloth to to fit the uh, the available situation, as they say. Yeah, that, that might come back to that word, um, what they do about it and cutting in a little while. But let me just drill into this issue in the UK specifically a little bit further. We we have listeners to this podcast all around the world and many from them in Australia and New Zealand and the Southern Hemisphere. And I think the situation for universities everywhere in the US, Australia is is challenging at the moment, but it seems to be particularly bleak in the the narrative and in the language coming out of the UK. And I wonder what you would put, you've hinted at some of this already in earlier questions, but what would you, would you put the changes that UK universities in particular are facing, what would you put it down to? Is is this a particularly British malaise linked? I don't know. Is it, is, is there a Brexit phenomena here? Are your, or, or are your universities just a slightly more acute case of what is a long-term funding and market challenges that are facing global higher education systems right now and into the future? What, what, what do you put the British situation in context down to? I think I'll make uh, two points there. The first is, right around the world, there's been a really massive expansion in, in higher education in the last decade. And I think there's a really good set of uh, evidence that this has had really significant impacts on local innovation, on economic productivity, and the development and wider cultural and, and social uh, benefits for, for different localities. But all of this has required quite a lot of investment. A uh, few of this has been done using private funding. A lot of it is government and state funding. And so now that uh, post-COVID, uh, post-downturn in the uh, global economies, uh, governments have moved into periods of austerity and they're generally trying hard or they're finding it really difficult to fund higher education against their other priorities of, of health and, and pensions and, and other public spending commitments. And so at best, uh, budgets have been frozen and sometimes they've been, 
been cut. So when you combine all of this with factors like reduced international mobility and uh, rapid rise in inflation and, and other cost pressures, it's meant um, a, a big difficulties on um, university government funding and a lot of a lot of squeezing. And that is, I think, why around the world universities are under pressure, financial pressure at the at the present time. And uh, though the middle classes are rising in many international economies, um, I don't think there's enough international students, given the great competition, to use that as a mechanism solely to uh, continue funding um, universities. You raised um, there a very interesting prospect that I hadn't anticipated, but I'd like to to, to ask you further about. You, you talked about so many of our systems being based on public funding and public investment and raised the issue of private investment. And I can't, I, I don't know a lot about the Dyson story, but I imagine there's some not insignificant private investment there. With, with your Dyson experience, but your extensive experience of public investment and its limitations, are we likely to see more private investment in higher education in the UK or elsewhere, do you believe? There are a small number of uh, privately funded um, colleges and, and universities in, in the UK, but not that many, actually. Its vast majority is public quasi-public funding. Dyson is uh, really interesting. Um, obviously, it's a major technology design and engineering uh, company with um, owned by a, a now wealthy family who could afford philanthropically to develop the university. But they also saw it as a way to train outstanding engineers who would come into the business. So it's, it's part altruism, but also part um, good uh, business sense. I have to say that um, the situation there was um, was amazing. Um, bring in really bright people, um, pay them a salary so they incur no debt, put them into uh, world-class engineering teams to learn real on-the-job practical experience, and then teach them using um, excellent lecturers and, and with really good facilities. So it's, it is unique in the UK, unique in my experience for the quality of um, the facilities and the teaching and the learning and the outcomes that are achieved. Of course, in other parts of the world, you can talk about Carnegie Mellon University and Johns Hopkins and Stanford and Harvard and others, which are essentially private uh, universities. We don't really have that here in the UK where even our best universities are substantially, although not exclusively funded by the public purse. Okay, well, unless there's going to be a major turnaround on that in the UK, and as you've already said, there's unlikely to be a major turnaround in public funding. As you've as you've written, there's um, you're you're part of the speculation that UK universities might fail financially. I, I've never seen what that looks like, so I don't know if you've seen what that looks like. But whether you have or not, how how likely is that, and how do you see that failure would would play out in a range of different types of universities in the UK? I think we should uh, break that down into two parts. Uh, why do universities fail and how do they fail? The why part is I think ultimately universities fail because they lack long-term competitive competitiveness. They can't attract the students they need, the staff and the funding to be able to prosper as an institution. Now, from my experience working in business, the failure usually precipitates really quite shockingly fast and occurs because institutions run out of cash to pay creditors. 
of course, universities try to avoid this and try to talk up a good story and keep it private that they're under significant stress. Hence the reason it's usually quite shocking and, and it can occur or at least be announced in a short period of, of time. So it's often unexpected, a very big shock to affected staff, students and other stakeholders. Now, the UK government have said on num numerous occasions that they will not support failing universities. But I think in practice, everybody believes that depending on what university is and where it's located, uh, the government will have to stop in in some form and to try to help. Not least because uh, I think the political consequences of a major university failure are enormous to the local area. And one of the things I'm slightly concerned about is if uh, a major university were to fail, then there could potentially be a domino effect uh, that would cause uh, lenders, for example, to check on the strength and the quality of their, of their loans and loan uh, covenants. It would um, potentially dissuade some students from coming from overseas or from the UK, ergo, um, there'd be fewer students, less income and um, less willingness for lenders to extend uh, credit terms. So I think it's actually a, a big issue. And the government, I think, are wrong to pretend that they're ignoring this. I think what they should be doing instead is thinking about how they would organise and manage decline of one or more player, rather some sort of chaotic collapse. And just in sort of financial and effort terms, it's always much easier to organise and manage um, the exit of a provider or an organisation than it is to deal with the consequences of a chaotic collapse when you've got to move really quickly and throw money and, and effort at the, at the problem. So it would be certainly less... Uh, much easier and less expensive if they engaged um, with the sector to do some sort of co-regulation and co-planning uh, co here. And they might even put up uh, funding to encourage mergers and acquisitions to help people work their own way to avoid this um, in, the, in the short, medium and, and long term. So I think a run on universities would be incredibly calamitous for all concerned and is much best avoided. And government, I think they've got some sort of responsibility and role here to try and work with uh, sector leaders to try and uh, make this happen in an organised way. Well, very wise words. And um, I know there was a lot of um, discussion around mergers of British universities a number of years ago. I haven't heard so much since, but um, I don't know if you can enlighten us on that. And we certainly have a number of mergers on the on the blocks in Australia, in South Australia and Western Australia, they're being mooted. But is there increased activity and discussion around the prospect of mergers between UK universities right now? There's always uh, conversations going on and um, there's always aspirations. And I'm, I'm sure behind the scenes there are a few uh, bits of dating going on, but there's none explicitly in the public domain, with the exception of St George's Medical School and City University uh, seeking uh, a, a merger that's been announced uh, publicly. So there's not, I think, a huge uh, a huge amount, but we do have a lot of universities, um, some very large, some uh, some small, and you could understand some sort of regional or thematic consolidation would make make sense. Um, certainly, economies of scale uh, help in in reducing average costs of of delivery and. We talk often, don't we, about sharing back office uh, costs and um, building consortia and, and groups to do to do that. I think there's some of that at the margins, but 
but nowhere near as much as it as it might be. Uh, but we need some incentives, I think, to do to do that because absence really big financial uh, challenges. It's I think hard for uh, university boards and executive teams to 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 vote themselves out of existence. It's a bit like Turkey's voting for Christmas, isn't, isn't it? You put so much pride into the institution, so much hard work that uh, a lot of people don't want to give that up without a really clear benefit for certainly the institution they serve and occasionally for them as well. Oh, interesting. I'm, I'm think, and, and I hope that I'm going to be talking to Anthony Finkelstein of City in a few weeks' time. I'll be fascinated to get his take on that public um, information about a merger involving his university and how he's similarly seeing the issues you've described. So, look, he and you, you you're both experienced and entrepreneurial vice chancellors. What, what, what are you all as leaders of these great UK universities that you've known, I've known since the halcyon days, what, what are you doing about this pr- predicament? I mean, I imagine it must be a, a likely fruitless mission to lobby for more funding in the environment that you've described, um, trying to work as a sector in managing the any fallout sounds much wiser. I imagine appropriately informing your internal and external stakeholders about the situation without scaring the horses is pretty critical. But I I imagine the bigger goal and biggest goal and most important task is to try and find a way beyond reducing public funding of of turning this round. And I'm sure you must have given a lot of thought to that. How how do you turn this round? Yes, I have given it an awful lot of of thought uh, as I've been been, been around. And I was brought into a number of institutions to try and help uh, resolve some of these challenges. Certainly right now, plan A is to continue to lobby for funding and to hope that the government will see sense and will provide additional money to support universities, given this systemic uh, across the board challenge. But I think um, we're all hoping for plan A, but uh, putting more realistic expectation into a plan B, which basically means solving the problem ourselves. I think part of the reason we are where we are is because people are trying as absolute best they can to preserve the current operating model for universities. And in the UK, that's um, dual intensive for many places, research and and teaching, often with a civic um, mission as well. It's about pretty high staff-student ratios because we know and, and, and there's good evidence to support the fact that that leads to high quality outcomes. It's about giving students a, a richness of, of experience, uh, not just learning either by rote or learning from textbooks, but learning by people who are leaders in their fields and are actively developing uh, research, providing good facilities and, and so on. But I think the alternative people are exploring right now, in some cases beginning to implement, is a new operating model for universities which can deliver good outcomes at less cost. And I think the key word in all of this is productivity, is staff uh, productivity, is ensuring that the people that do research are um, producing good outcomes from that research and that as much as that staff time is externally funded as, as possible. And in teaching, I think we just have to ask the question, does every hour of teaching of undergraduate students, uh, does it all have to be delivered? Everyone have to be delivered by a lecturer who's on a relatively high uh, salary, uh, but instead, can we deliver it using team teaching, using uh, people who are uh, experienced and paid at a level appropriate to the type of things which are being uh, delivered? 
And I think also we need to begin to explore the use of technology as an adjunct, in some cases an alternative and better way to deliver certain types of, of teaching and, and learning. Um, and it, I think need to examine again the in-person um, model in some cases. I think there will always be an interest for that and always be a place for, for that. But there are potentially um, less expensive um, all-round ways of, of delivering that. There's some um, some very um, well-articulated and considered views of tweaks and changes to the operating model there, David. Thanks for outlining those. And whilst many commentators are, are arguing strongly for those sorts of changes, there are also pushes to, to, for universities to think towards growth opportunities in areas like lifelong learning and in employer partnerships for, for new products universities can offer to gain new revenue streams and to position in what some are seeing as a, a, a an evolving, transforming, disrupting learning economy even. Is, is that the sort of language and are they the sort of opportunities that you subscribe to and that many people are talking about and pursuing in the UK? I think all of these things are on the agenda right now and lots of senior teams are exploring alternative uh, educational model, alternative uh, revenue streams, if you like. Remember that in the UK, adult executive and continuing education have been a feature for, for decades. Think, for example, about uh, the Open University's world-leading uh, contribution to online learning or Birkbeck College's uh, evening adult education and, and, and so on, and continuing education in the University of London and many, many places. These did suffer quite a bit from the recent funding regimes when there's been this shoehorning of uh, the model into three-year undergraduate um, in-person in uh, learning from either residential or commuter students. It remains um, interesting to me that in the UK, the lifelong uh, learning entitlement, the LLE, is largely being led by government. It's not being uh, led by student customer demand, we might say, and it's certainly not being led by the suppliers, the universities. And so whilst I think there are undoubtedly opportunities for upskilling and, and cross-skilling, currently there really just aren't the incentives there for universities to participate. If I look at the current model that's been advocated, it could mean as much as a tenfold increase in the level of bureaucracy as we move from uh, the course as the unit of uh, consideration to the to the module. Uh, I think there'll be greater regulation already. We're, we're beginning to see all of that. And it could potentially destabilise what is, after all, a really well-established and proven model, the undergraduate uh, teaching model. So when government ran uh, pilots just recently, I think it was really telling that there was a lack of student interest and many of the loans that just set aside were never even taken up and the registration on courses was much less than would be would be advocated. So at best, the jury is still out about, about that. And I'm not seeing the evidence for clear uh, demand across the sector. Uh, and it's not appearing right now as an alternative to uh, the way that currently universities operate. Okay, fascinating. And um, look, you've mentioned in a couple of the answers to date, um, the place of technology and the um, mention of online learning. Um, I, I, I've interviewed lots of people on this podcast over the 100 episodes that um, I got to at the start of this year. And I've, so, some very different 
ideas, models, and um, strategies followed by universities around the world. You you referred to it there as the tried and tested model. Some of the more interesting and, and less tried and tested and more innovative and faster growing models are found in the US. And I know that's a very different environment to the one that you're in and the one that I'm in. But online universities like Southern New Hampshire University, I don't know if you know their story, and Paul LeBlanc, and perhaps even more contrasting Western Governors University and what Scott Pulsifer is doing in Salt Lake, from Salt Lake City around the States, and so, someone that's been a, a great ally of us on, on the HeadX podcast, Michael Crow, and what he's grown to all be now almost 200,000 students in the in the Southern New Hampshire and Western Governors University case, almost entirely online, and then ASU's t- case about half online. You, you, you mentioned open universities. You know, Britain led the way in this with open university. There don't seem to have been many that have followed it with quite the same thrust that Southern New Hampshire, Western Governors or ASU have done, have they? Um, I think that's an accurate uh, reflection. There are quite a number of UK universities who have developed online learning um, units uh, and uh, extensive programmes. Think about Edinburgh University, I think it's got around 80 masters online at the present time. You talked about Open University, uh, but but many others have also got um, uh, online um, programmes and, uh, and developments. And lots of universities are currently using technology and learning as part of their overall uh, delivery model. That was one of the things I think we all learned in COVID, if there, if there was a great success for universities in that area, it was about um, upskilling, um, about the use of, uh, of, of technology and figuring out how quickly to to, de- to deploy it. So I'm a, I'm a real fan of, of, of technology and I have been since I chaired the board of JISC, um, that's UK's expert body for um, digital uh, data in higher education. Bill Gates once said that we tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the short term, and we tend to underestimate its impact in the long term. So I think these things will be very profound and will have major, major changes. And we learned a bit about acceleration and interest and experience in in the pandemic. And as I said, many universities have got online offerings and there are pockets of of serious innovation. Uh, I don't think online education will replace in-person on-campus learning. I think there are opportunities for both of those to be successful. And I'm a real strong fan of hybrid learning where we combine the best of in-person and, and, and technology-enhanced learning using the right tool in the right setting for the right uh, sort of student. So I think it will have a transformative impact on, uh, on higher education in the next decade, not least of which is in the whole area of artificial in- intelligence, which I think will have um, transformative changes from everything to do with personal uh, learning uh, and student support in both formal and informal settings. And of course, it will open really new interesting opportunities for career development for students and staff and also uh, research opportunities as we try to figure out uh, what what this technology is all about and how we can apply it in, in different contexts. Fascinating. So, look, this has been a great conversation, David. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And I, I wonder if in closing, we might just go back to where we started in that you started your world journey at a time when universities were optimistic. I remember those days well. They were hopeful. They were looking forward to global opportunities. I was. Sounds like you were too. 
Um, here we are almost 40 years later. You, you just said that Bill Gates's quote about overestimating in the short term and underestimating in the long term. If we were to look another 40 years ahead from, you know, ridiculous to look 40 years ahead from now. But what do you see when you look ahead to the long term prospects of global higher education providers at the start of 2024? Well, universities are still the most wonderful places to work and, and study. I'm doing this because I'm in, I'm enjoying it and because there's a self sense of fulfillment about di discovering new things and um, educating the minds of the future. So for every challenge, there's always an opportunity in universities. And for every wizened old crony, there's always a bright, young, enthusiastic spark that gives us energy and belief in the future and that's uh that's what gets me excited so i come to work in, in the morning um universities have been around as we know for hundreds of years and they've really survived because they've adapted to the changing world and i think that they'll continue to evolve through this period of uncertainty and, and major change and there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that they'll still be striving in 10 years time in 20 years time albeit i think they'll be in a different form uh, universities are really important to uh, all parts of, of the world um they lead us forward through discovery and they enable us to upskill, train and develop the minds of the future. And they have a huge cultural and uh, civilizing impact on the regions that they serve uh, and the absolute pillarstones of uh, society. And uh, I'm sure they'll survive all of us and beyond. Well, that's a much more optimistic and um and confident view than the headline that I read a few months ago suggesting that despite the fact that half of them might be in deficit at the moment, that um, there might be widespread, widespread failure on the, on the prospect. So, look, for giving us that really considered and um, optimistic view about how change, when embraced by leaders that get it, um, can really bring about change that will lead to the ongoing survival of something that served us all so well for so long. I really thank you for joining us on the HeadX podcast and wish you well with your journey at the University of East Anglia. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Well, there we go, Andrea. That was um, quite an insight from from David Maguire, wasn't it? Of um, what what he sees in the broader UK sector. I, I found that suggestion that um, the issue of failure of universities will come down to the why they fail and how they fail showed some really interesting insights. And look, look, you've worked in the business sector for some while and seen startups and business failures and close downs i imagine of all sorts of types and sizes in different businesses that you've worked in and worked for but what do you sense from the perspective that that brings for you that failure of a university would look like if it were to happen in the uk and even if it was to become widespread uh the failure of a major institution would pose challenges difficult to resolve with the existing policy tools such as the student transfers and involuntary mergers. I think the impact on local and regional economies would be considerable and the political fallout unpredictable. Um, if we look at some figures from the uh, sector body, univer um, universities in England this year ran an average deficit of £1,750 for teaching each undergraduate, and this is predicted to rise to 4000 in 2024-25. Now, in response to these pressures, and as David referenced, 
cost. Universities are controlling costs, they're diversifying income streams, they're reviewing their underlying operating models. And it has been clear for some time that there are not public funds to bail the sector out. So strategies to mitigate the risks are being considered and executed. And I, th I think it's important to underline our universities are a national asset. They give opportunities, they grow the economy, they solve global challenges, and they equip graduates with skills for the future. In 21-22, universities across the UK generated 130 billion for the economy, and that included almost 15 billion generated from the spending of international students. Wow, they're, they're big numbers, aren't they? And um, they're big numbers from a sector that's almost entirely in in public hands, as um, David made a point of mentioning, as I pushed him on the sort of private investment question. But but um, I'm interested in your thoughts on that, because you work for an online provider that was a startup that grew in Australia um, from a university in, in Australia to now become a globally successful ed tech operation and, a, and an OPM provider. Are we, are we like to see more ventures of companies coming out of universities and becoming part of the ecosystem and thriving in Australia or in UK or globally by working as part of the system in partnership with the universities in that sort of way, do you think? Um, if we focus on, on online, I think it's important to say that not all online education is equal in terms of quality. Um, the investment needed to launch and scale an online portfolio successfully isn't insignificant. So the barriers to entry to deliver high quality, academic led, student centric learning online are arguably high. But I think the combination of the market demand for flexible online learning from a UK institution and the sector need to mitigate the financial sustainability challenges means we will see the need for universities to consider more ventures um, with uh, third parties uh, across a number of different uh, areas of the uh, education space. Uh, I also think that the, they need to universities need to consider the recruitment of overseas students. Of course, they need to consider strategic mergers and the collaborations perhaps change the course delivery models to more online, hybrid, high flex, and think about their market positioning, perhaps increase academic specialisms or niches to reduce compet uh, compet competition risks. Um, there are a number of routes to achieve domestic and global success. Higher education in the UK is under pressure. There are no quick fixes, but change is constant and should be expected. So yes, I absolutely think there'll be more collaborative ventures and partnerships across industry, universities, and third-party providers. But that's what you think. What we've heard um, now a couple from a couple of vice chancellors that you and I have um, reflected on together in the UK. What what, what do you think m most institutions and many of the leaders in the UK are currently thinking about? this embracing of new business models and embracing of technology. And give, given the challenge that so many of them are under that the PwC report has shone a light on, where, where does this sort of idea sit in their their broader set of priorities um, for turning around challenge universities? Or are they all pursuing plan A, do you think? In most of the university strategy documents that I've read, technology is cited as a key plank in the strategy. New business models aren't so obviously called out as a standalone element, 
but there are certainly activities that mean that new business models are being considered. You know, as an example, many universities now offer choices of higher or degree apprenticeships. There are at least six UK universities that are leading or part of groups that are setting up institutes of technology across the UK. There's also the introduction of the lifelong loan entitlement, which could provide new pathways for students who want to study in a more flexible way. Um, as David referenced, that's possibly one uh, that is uh, up for debate and, and to be seen uh, if it will end up being as successful as, as the government hopes it will be. The majority of higher and middle ranking universities are offering online, hybrid or high flex learning, either through in-house capabilities or in partnership with edtech companies. So we're definitely seeing um, technology and new business models as being priorities. Um, I've had this conversation in an Australian context many times over the last couple of years now in, in this podcast and as we've interviewed people in that part of the world. That um, there's so many of our current leaders of our universities, and maybe this is just bringing us to a close in the interview and the podcast for this week, Andrea, that there's so many of our current university leaders that, like David and, and, and like me, really, sort of developed their reputations and their careers in disciplines, in universities that were like they were and are quite different to what they've become and are maybe very different to what they need to become in the future. And when you've got leadership that's come through that route of development, and almost all of the leaders have come through that route of development, I just wonder what, what it means to how well equipped we are to have the broad cadre of leadership that will really be so important to take the sector through this current crisis of funding, if that's what it is, and to lead it into a very different sort of rapidly changed future. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that from your perspective in the sector and all of your work outside it? Um, universities are now competing over a record amount of competitive revenue and actually making them some of the biggest businesses in the UK. In less than a decade, undergraduate provision has changed from state-allocated number-controlled stasis to fully competitive businesses. A recent PA uh, annual report, 2023, of UK vice-chancellors said that 90% of the vice chancellors felt that UK universities have never faced greater threats or uncertainties amid a worsening relationships with Westminster government and the Office for Students in particular, quote, unquote. So I think the key leadership qualities are being adaptive, resilient, flexible, with a high level of commerciality and digital fluency. Unprecedented challenges require new strategies and tactics. If you want different results, you have to do things differently. You've got an uncanny knack of ending our podcast with three bullet points that really strike home the whole message. A, a lovely note to finish on. And what a lovely sense of uh, direction to take into the Year of the Dragon. Thanks very much for joining us again this week, Andrew. That's a pleasure. And that's all we've got time for this week on Headaches. <laughs>